Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome into another edition of the Hang Time Podcast. Seku Smith here in Atlanta. John Schumann is in the tri-state area somewhere, Shu. I don't know where you are right now in terms of being en route to game two of uh, Sixers Nets. But I know the playoffs are well underway. We are knee-deep into the action. Game ones are out of the way in each and every series. And as opposed to business as usual, there were some some shocking basketball shoe that went on in some of these game ones. I know that, you know, you were privy to some of that shock in the Sixers Nets game. And what better place to start when we go back and look at these game ones than what happened with the Sixers getting booed on their home floor, getting popped in game one by the Nets. Big game for D'Angelo Russell and several other guys. Jimmy Butler did his thing for the Sixers, but nobody else seemed to get comfortable. What, what do you make of that series going into game two? Well, I think, you know, we said in our preview podcast last week that, you know, it's all about Joel Embiid. And for me, I I just, you know, he only played 24 minutes. Um, He had decent, sort of like a decent box score line, but he just did not, he was not himself. And it's weird. He basically drew a bunch of fouls on the nets in the first few minutes, catching the ball inside, getting drawn fouls on Jared Allen, uh, a couple other guys. But those catches inside just didn't continue. In fact, this is what I wrote about uh, Saturday was that he caught the ball 12 times sort of within 12 to 15 feet of the basket and either scored or drew a foul 11 of those 12 times. But then he caught the ball 24 times nearer beyond the three-point line and the Sixers scored or, or drew a foul just five times of those 24 touches. And there was just too much of him catching the ball at the outside. I mean, he was clearly laboring uh, with his knee tendonitis and also seemed a little bit out of shape. You know, he's, he's, he's admitted that he, he quickly falls out of shape when he hasn't been playing um, and he hasn't been playing um, very much down the stretch of the regular season. And so too often he's the last man down the floor. And so he's, he, you know, he's sort of, they pass it to him as the trailer, you know, out beyond the three point line and too often. And, and the Nets are happy to have him catch it out there. They're not defending him out there. He missed I think he missed all five of his three-point attempts, and all of those were first quarter or maybe first few minutes of the second quarter. And then he sort of got hesitant to shoot and was being more passive. Now, if, if he's out there and nobody's guarding him, you know, they, the Sixers can still be effective if he runs like a dribble handoff for Redick. And now, you know, with, with Embiid's defender in the paint, there's nobody to help on that. But I thought Brooklyn did a really good job of denying out on the perimeter uh, with Redick, with Tobias Harris, and like you said, Butler had a, had, a, had a terrific game. You know, he was running some pick. He had some success in pick and roll. If you're going to beat Brooklyn uh, offensively. He awesome. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Yeah, and Brooklyn will give up points to pick and roll guys. You know, they try to sit back uh, on the pick and roll. So if a guy can, can shoot off the dribble, he can be pretty successful against the Brooklyn defense. But there wasn't enough of that. There wasn't enough of, of Tobias Harris. There wasn't enough from Butler. Ben Simmons had another, you know, bad playoff game. Um, you know, if you just stay in front of him and don't let him get all the way to the basket, you know, he shoots these little, you know, four or five foot runners that 
that aren't all that successful. So um, credit to Brooklyn, though. Their bench was fantastic. Karis LeVert, that was clearly his best game since uh, returning from his injury. Um, he looked sh- much sharper than he did, you know, at the end of the regular season. Ed Davis was terrific. Jared Dudley was terrific. And so give those guys credit. They had a, they played terrific. D'Angelo Russell had an ugly first half, but came back and, and was uh, much better in the second half. It, it'll be interesting, you know, Embiid, as we talk, is is questionable for game two. Jimmy Butler seemed to insinuate that, you know, maybe he should sit out um, and maybe they'd be better off if Embiid is not. If he if he's at the level he was in game one, then maybe they'd be better off um, going without him. You know, we'll see what, how that works out. But uh, we talked about it in the pre- – he was, he was dominant against Brooklyn in the regular season. And him not being at 100% – obviously hurts the Sixers. They still have the ability to beat this team in this series, for sure, even without a, a, a 100% Embiid. Um, but it does just make it that much more difficult. And because, you know, the Sixers have had such little continuity with their starting lineup, you know, they're not exactly they, – they don't know exactly where to go as a plan B, plan C. Sure. He dominates the spurts anyway, Shu, but that's not going to cut it in a playoff series, let, you know, whether it's Brooklyn or anybody else. I mean, if they're going to win and win deep into these playoffs, it has to be a consistently dominant Joel Embiid for it to be a difference. And their, their starting lineup only played like nine minutes together. It was a plus. Yeah, Reddick was totally ineffective. Yeah, Reddick uh, was in, ineffective and in uh And Tobias Harris was not himself, so. Yeah, I'll say the one thing, other thing about the Brooklyn offense is in, in all the game ones, Brooklyn ran the most isolations, and they were not a high isolation team in the regular season, but they have a couple of good isolation guys in Dinwiddie and Lavert, especially. And so they found Reddick. You know, they got those switches and then isolated on Reddick. They isolated on Mike Scott quite a bit um, and took advantage. So that's the sort of the thing to watch on the other end. But that's playoff basketball, right? Like you hunt, exactly. you hunt mismatches and you, you, exactly. you look for the weakness on the other end in the opposing defense and, uh, and attack that weakness weakness as much as you can. And it worked out, definitely, uh, in them attacking Reddick uh, on Saturday. They're game ones, so I know we have to temper our energy and excitement about, oh, no, you know, some team's in trouble or, you know, the series is off the rails. But I couldn't help but feel like the fans in Toronto had their entire postseason deflated by DJ Augustine. They, you know, they have to be thinking, are you serious? Like, we thought we got rid of this demon when LeBron went west. Are you telling me that and, the Raptors lost to game one? It's like it's it's like the cherry blossoms. I mean, it's an annual thing. They, I, you know, and I don't know. Nick Nurse looked like he was losing his mind, you know, trying to figure out how to stop it. But it's weird. Orlando is another one of these teams, much like Brooklyn to me, that on the hoof you say, okay, they, they barely got into the playoffs. They had to, you know, get in it basically at the wire. But they they didn't play like that in that first game. And tell me if you agree with this. I heard a lot of people talking about it um, over the weekend. For teams that have been playing meaningful games for the last month, game one is their equalizer. It's their opportunity to catch that other team sleeping a little bit. And, and Orlando looked really sharp. They looked dialed in like they've been doing this for weeks now, playing pressure-packed, every possession matters basketball. The history tells us that, you know, momentum doesn't really matter much going into playoffs. But I, I, you could say that Orlando going into the series no, knew more who it was than maybe the Raptors just because of the Raptors' sort of lack of continuity throughout the season where they never had. They didn't have a full roster, full rotation, barely ever. 
you know, um, and especially once they added Marcus Gasol. Um, you know, they tried to play a, a few games down the stretch of the season with their full rotation, but, or like you said, Orlando, but th- yeah, those games didn't mean much to them. And while Orlando was playing games that count and, and also, you know, they just knew who they were by the end of the season, you know, that, that there's sort of post break magic they knew who they were as a defensive team, um, where they're getting their offense. I thought the interesting thing about this was that in the regular season, Orlando has success against the Raptors by limiting Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam with their sort of uh, lengthy forwards, uh, Gordon and Isaac. Leonard and Siakam gave the Raptors 49 points combined on somewhat efficient scoring, and the Raptors just didn't get enough elsewhere. I think Kyle Lowry was 0 for 7. Disaster. Um, had eight assists. I don't think he, yeah, he, he yeah, was. The, yeah, he was. The, he wasn't the big problem, but just missed shots and. Yes, was, you can't have a you can't have a guy who's supposed to be one of your your cornerstone players play that poorly yet again in, in a game one of a playoffs. Yeah, and then it, I mean shooting was a big thing in in game one. So I'll I'll give you this stat: the there were nine teams in game one that shot better than thirty three percent from three point range. Eight of the nine won. The only loser was the Clippers, and they didn't shoot as well as the the Warriors. The seven teams that shot thirty three percent or worse from three point range in Game One all lost. And so, you know, the Sixers were three for twenty five. Uh, Oklahoma City was five for thirty three. I mean, that's just you know brutal. And it's not just hey, you know, they missed open shots in all those cases, but you know, you got to be able to you got to have guys who can knock them down. Um, when teams put uh, all the attention on the on the guys who can score, and then you know Toronto. I mean, right before uh, Augustine's game-winning three, I mean Marcus Gasol missed a wide open corner look that went in and out. But hey, give credit to Orlando, and Augustine is is a better point guard than you know he gets credit for. We you know we thought for a while that that is a uh, a that position is a hole that the Magic need to fill. But Augustine is solid. Um, he was the third best pull-up three-point shooter in the league basically this season, and he won it with a pull-up three when Gasol and Leonard got confused on the on the coverage there. Um, he took advantage, and even before that, the drive to tie was was impressive. Like him going into traffic uh, in the paint at the end of the shot clock to tie the game with a with a layup was tough too. Yeah, I've, as much as we look back. At these game, game ones, we need to look forward, I guess. Is it, is it as simple as Toronto needing Kyle Lowry to play much, much better in game two and going forward? I mean, is it, I mean, Toronto's got everything else. They got to have, but they can't have Kyle Lowry not play up to at least a decent standard. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's got to be better. He's got to make shots. I mean, that's simple. And his, he's a dude whose confidence comes and goes. Like, it really does. Like, you can tell, like, when he's missing shots, he gets hesitant. It's, and, you know, he, at, you know, for a couple of years, he's passing up opportunities yeah, big time. For a couple of years, he was one of the best pull-up three-point shooters in the league. Um, and he, but if he's not comfortable stepping into that shot, you know, that takes away a threat. And and now, you know, teams don't necessarily have to respect him as much, and so they can play him to drive, and they can, and they don't have to help off the other Raptors as much. So, you know, that pull-up three is such a huge we- weapon across the league. He's a guy who's had it in the past who doesn't necessarily have it right now. And that just makes the Raptors just a little bit easier to guard. And Orlando's a great defensive team as it is. The other thing, a good point that Michael Grange brought up in his column was that Kawhi Leonard only played 33 minutes. Like, right. And Nick Nurse said, yeah, he's got to play more, but 
almost was kind of unaware that, you know, oh, you know, I only played him 33 minutes. I talked to Nurse like a little right near the end of the season and where I was at, you know, their game in, in Brooklyn near the end of the season. And he he's kind of I don't think he scripts his rotation very much. And so he mm-hmm. could kind of get lost in that a little bit and not realize that, hey, uh, I could put Leonard on the floor a little bit more than I than I have. I, I'd be interested to see, obviously, his uh, Kawhi's minutes in game two. Very, yeah, very interesting to see. Um, no offense to the Los Angeles Clippers, but I'm not going to dwell on the foolishness we saw from Patrick Beverly doing his usual, trying to get under the skin of everybody on the Warriors. He and Kevin Durant get tossed for barking and woofing at each other, basically. Nothing serious. I'll give you one note from that game. The Warriors' starting lineup with DeMarcus Cousins was a minus six, minus six in its mm-hmm. 13 minutes. Cousins was a minus 17 in 20 minutes, 21 minutes before fouling out. So that's just something to, you know, keep an eye on. Just look at that lineup and see how it does. Their bench was terrific. Andre Iguodala was terrific. And that's yeah. and that's and that's significant in that they're playing the Clippers, who, you know, need to win with their, their best. bench, right? Yes. So the yes. fact that the Warriors bench can outplay the Clippers bench, even though the even though they got not outscoring but outplay. Yeah, yes. just, you know, keep the scoreboard moving in the right direction when when the so Lou Williams had twenty five and nine, but was a minus eighteen. Montres Harrell had twenty six but was a minus thirteen. So like yeah, they're gonna get theirs, but if if they're not, you know, out you know out scoring the the other team that then it doesn't matter um it helps to have steph doing uh yes. doing steph stephish things so Correct. um the more intriguing game to me was the final game on the opening day and that was denver losing at home to san antonio i think we if if we didn't talk about it on our preview i know i talked about it on the radio in a couple of places last week that was the series that scared me for for denver because i was worried about their Playoff inexperience becoming a fact, and it reared its head in game one. They looked very unsettled with that game tight down the stretch, Um, just in terms of what they wanted to do, where they wanted to go. Jamal Murray, you know, had a a couple of shots late that I thought were ISO plays for him that I would have rather seen Will Barton make, or at least one of them go to Will Barton. Was, Was there something about the strategic way they went about that game that that gave you pause? Actually, the one thing I I was a little bit surprised that I was on the other end of the floor, that they doubled LaMarcus Aldridge so aggressively uh, in the post. I'm not a fan of doubling anybody in the post, really, because it's not the most efficient way to score, even if you have LaMarcus Aldridge. You know, I'll give him 17, 18-foot fadeaways. You know, just try to stay in front and lean on that right shoulder a little bit so that he's not shooting comfortably off the shoulder. Because I think, you know, the other guys for San Antonio really took advantage. Uh, Brent Forbes and Derek White combined for 31 points on 13 for 19 shooting. Those guys were terrific. Uh, Derek White looked a little like DeRozan, you know, getting some buckets in that sort of mid-range floater area. He was fantastic. I mean, he was – that dunk over Millsap, you know, got me up (laughs) off – I jumped up when I was like, oh, you know. It's a, it's amazing though. Like I, I brought it up in our preview thing, the Spurs were against the other seven West playoff teams. The Spurs were one and eleven on one and eleven, yeah, in the regular season. Now they're one and zero in the playoffs. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a perfect illustration about the fact that it's a new season. Yeah, and that you can focus on one opponent. Like you're you're yeah. going from we talked about it last week. You're going in the regular season. You're going from opponent to opponent. The Spurs, I think, especially are a team that doesn't focus too much on the opponent and doesn't. Um, 
worry too much about game planning against that particular opponent in the regular season but come the playoffs you know that's all they have you know that's all they can do and so that's it's a different I think this is the one team that you can really say given one particular opponent uh, to focus on that they can be uh, improved especially defensively because we know that defense was their issue in the regular season. John, those Saturday games gave way to a Sunday slate that wasn't quite as dramatic, um, but interesting nonetheless. Boston and Indiana played what what amounts to a first half in some of these other games. The scoring, when I looked at the score and realized it was the final score, I was like, wait a minute. Indiana obviously has an issue in not having a star player to kind of tote the load for them, which we knew that would be an issue going in. Do they have any chance to make this a six, seven-game series, or are they just kind of going through the motions and getting ready to get punched out? Because Boston, we know, clearly has better depth than Indiana had. Yeah, I don't – I'm not counting them out. I mean, one game is one game, and every game is different. You know, I think you've noticed that, like, in playoff series, like, game two can be nothing like – you could talk about all these themes from game one, and then game two will be completely different, and everything you said about game one just means nothing. Right. So I know, I, I mean, I'm not going to count them out, but yeah, that eight point third quarter uh, on Sunday is not very uh, encouraging in, in regard to the Pacers ability to compete in this series. You know, they obviously need more from everybody. I mean, there's nobody that you can say uh, sort of held his own offensively really in this, in this, uh, in that game, maybe Corey Joseph, who, I mean, we talked about last week, how he, how much he struggled offensively. He led them with 14 points, hit five of his nine shots. And I think he's really important for them defensively. Um, so if you get some kind of offense from, from him, that's a good sign, but then nobody else, nobody else could make a shot. And so that, I mean, we talked about three point shooting patients were six for 27 and that's, that's a struggle. Um, and I think, Boston, like I said, with the Spurs, I think Boston is a team that can be better defensively in the postseason because of their ability to focus on one opponent. Uh, we saw last year how they just sort of out-executed the Bucks and out-executed the Sixers and even out-executed the Cavs for a, a few games in that series. So that's a team that's got some veterans on it, can stick to a game plan pretty well. Al Horford, obviously uh, such a critical piece to that on both ends of the floor, you know, knows where to be uh, defensively and knows how to take advantage of certain things offensively. And so, you know, it's encouraging for Boston that they were able to sort of look more like themselves in game one. But, you know, like I said, anything could happen going forward. You know, I've certainly counted teams out after two games losing uh, on the road, and then they turn things around when they get home. So yeah, Pacers are too good to just roll over, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I don't mean to sound fatalistic for them. I just mean home and road is one thing in some of these series. Personnel and, and you know, and I think it applies in, in some of these other series in, in the game ones we saw on Sunday where – I'll skip over to Detroit and Milwaukee. I don't see a path to anything other than a, a sweep for Detroit. It, you know, if Blake Griffin is not healthy enough to play game one, I, I don't know where a Pistons team would go uh, in this series trying to make it anything anything but respectable. I mean, yeah, you give them no shot to win a series without Blake or to even think about winning a, a, two, you know, a game or two in a series without Blake. Yeah, they were in the middle of the second quarter on Sunday, and I started like looking up. All right, what's the biggest point differential in a playoff series <laughs> ever? Like, I really like give credit to Detroit for getting into the playoffs, but 
without Blake Griffin, they are uh, a dead man walking basically. And, yeah. and Milwaukee and, and, and that would be against Toronto or Philadelphia, probably and Milwaukee is the best team in the East and has been the best team in the East and is right. determined and also a team that didn't win a playoff series last year. So has, isn't just like sort of taking this for granted whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, that up, definitely. Um, and so if this isn't a sweep, I'd be uh, completely shocked. Um, the one thing to note, I think, I guess with the bucks is that uh, Miritich played his first game in, in at least a month, I think on Sunday, I think he was over five from three, but just to have him out there and, and starting to get some reps and that allows him to, you know, get back in basketball shape for the second round. Right. Did you take anything away from Ennis Cantor dominating his old team the way he did the the Thunder in that Portland game? I mean, it was a good game down the stretch, a 104-99 win for, for Portland. Damian Lillard went off, had 30. But Cantor, to me, was the story early on in that I didn't expect him to be quite as effective as he was, man. He, he, he gave Stephen Adams a business. I mean, it was – pretty clear his skill level on the offensive end and as a offensive rebounder was a huge difference for Portland huge dear uh Billy Donovan I am not unplayable in the playoffs love love Ennis <laughs> um he's a really good off I mean we've said it he's a, he's a really good offensive center I mean the the he's a beast on the glass um one of the best offensive rebounders in the league yeah probably this the, the, the bet maybe the best outside of Detroit and a skill like he can I mean he could pick and roll catch and finish like he's he can do that and I think in the key uh, was the other end of the floor where he wasn't a huge liability I mean there was some possessions where he looked bad defensively but there was others where he was able to you know he battled, hedge, on, yeah. hedge on hedge on the pick and roll then get back to Steve Steven Adams and and keep him from getting uh easy layups I thought uh he was passable on that end of the floor and and that's huge. I mean, that's that's a big factor in this series is is cancer being somewhat passable on defense against Oklahoma City. And but Lillard, I mean, shoot, I mean, he came out and hit it like a thirty footer on the first possession, and then when Oklahoma City cut a nineteen put point deficit all the way down to one with a little less than three minutes left, he hit another. I think it counted as a 31 footer. Yeah. Three. And so Oklahoma city never had a chance to tie or take the lead because of that particular three point shot. So that's, I mean, that's, I think Damian Lillard says, Hey, if you're going to bring two to me when I come off a screen, then I'm just going to shoot right away before you can bring that second defender, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm going to have to, I think that's a, a, a serious game plan. It's like, I'm going to have to shoot from 30 feet um, in order to get my shot. Because if I start to dribble, any closer to the basket, you know, I'm going to have extra defenders on me. And so uh, if he could shoot like that. That's, I mean, it's great recognition by Lillard, too, to understand exactly what's coming at him defensively. Yeah. You know, he and C.J. McCollum, I thought both showed off why they're so effective. You know, whether they're, whether they're making shots or not, they just know how to attack. Uh, and it helps when they got somebody else shoot, like Cantor, you know, filling that void from a scoring perspective, at least, uh, to help pick up that slack. We've got a, a, an interesting situation in this Houston-Utah series to me, Shu. That was a statement performance to me from the Rockets that had nothing to do with Utah and everything to do with what could be coming down the uh, yellow brick road against the Warriors in the conference semifinals. It's almost to me like they're trying to make sure they let everybody know they are 
serious about this takedown of the Warriors. I loved the way that their role players showed up. Uh, Capella was great, I thought. I loved the energy from, from Kenneth Fareed and House and even Austin Rivers defensively. Um, the way he played that I like Houston's demeanor right now in terms of the tone they're trying to set coming into this postseason. Yeah. Can't be a more motivated team in the league right now. Right. Like just the way that their season ended last year, yes. thinking that they had what it took to beat the Warriors having leads, double digit leads in game six and game seven, but missing Chris Paul in those games. They absolutely have to have be the most motivated team in the league. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think Utah is better than that though. And I, I think they've obviously got to mix up their coverage on James Harden a little more than they did. I'll give you a couple numbers from that game. Houston had five corner threes, which was uh, more than anybody else had in game one. Mm-hmm. Five for 14. So they gave up some corner threes. And also they had 50 points in the restricted area, which is more than any other team had uh, in game one. And that's not a restricted area buckets are not what the, the the Jazz are supposed to be giving up. You know, right. they have Rudy Gobert. They have to, even when Rudy Gobert is off the floor, they have Derek Favors protecting the rim. So um, those are the, the, the two things that stood out to me is like if the Jazz are giving up layups, then, you know, they have no chance. Um, they've got to be better defensively. They've got to mix up their coverage on James Harden so he doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Every time, um, I thought Kenny Smith brought up a good argument in the post game. Yeah, that they've got to make James Harden shoot a lot, and then hope that you know by by game five, game six, if we get there. Yeah, if yeah, yeah, and if by game by five, game six, he's just tired, like and and isn't as as effective because he's been carrying such a huge load offensively. You know, uh, him having ten assists is a great number for for the Rockets, and and obviously those other guys have to make shots. But Gordon three for five from three, Tucker three for seven. You know that's. That's big. I mean, I expect something different in this series. Like, I don't like as much as you're right about Houston making a statement. I don't expect every game to go like this whatsoever. No, no. But I mean, game ones are open. And sh- you know, you, you're announcing yourself to me in the playoffs for everybody. A game one is a hey, uh, this is who we think we are and what we think we're capable of, and, and you're kind of sending that message to the rest of the league. And I felt like Houston's was a more pointed performance against a team that they dealt with last year in the playoffs. They defended Donovan Mitchell really well. Yes, they did. They, they wow. gave gave him fits. And R- Ricky Rubio wasn't a, a part of that series last year the way, you know, I'm sure he wanted to be. And so I was curious to see how he would match up. I don't know who decided playing him on James Harden for those stretches that it was a good idea. I did not like at all seeing him trying to d- keep up with Harden. I, I thought that was... That was that was the matchup in the regular season, too. I know. I t- I understand he's got the size and he's got the defensive fundamentals that make sense, but we'll, we'll see. If they I like Royce O'Neal better against him last year in the playoffs, and I thought we'd have seen more of that, and we saw some of it in Game One, but I thought we'd see more of that. Uh, you know, O'Neal, O'Neal kind of locked in with Harden for the for the game. Well, one thing we could see is a, a starting lineup change. I mean, they haven't um, been hesitant to put Derek Favors on the bench and start Jay Crowder. Right. Um, in fact, Crowder started 11 games in the regular season. Three of those were against the Rockets, their second, third, and fourth meetings in the regular season. So I wouldn't be surprised if they go back to that and say and give Crowder the assignment to start the game. But I, like I said, I thought they defended 
uh, Mitchell well, and the other guys just didn't make shots. Um, yeah. Ingles, one for three for three. Uh, Rubio, one for three. Crowder, one for seven. Cephalosha, one for four. They need shooters. If, if, if Mitchell's going to see a crowd, they obviously need uh, the other guys to make sure make sure yeah no question and you know and look you it's it's a whole new world when you get to the playoffs i know everybody look you got to use the regular season matchups as your guide and that you're using the minutiae that you've you know gleaned in those instances to to help you build some kind of game plan for the playoffs but i i would tell you that i i like better the idea that you say you know what whatever may or may not have worked in those three or four or whatever, you know, matchups three or four times we had this group on the floor against that group during the regular season, you better find something that works on the fly. Uh, you better do what I thought Brooklyn did and say, you know what, this is our one opportunity to take advantage of this team. In this instance, let's take advantage of it. Let's let's deploy our guys in a different way. And I think that that applies across the board for a lot of these teams in, in the first round, at least, in that you got to kind of play in the moment and, and abandon a strict adherence to whatever the trends or, you know, your game plan say. If you find something you can exploit, you, you got to go all in to try and win one game. Because really, if you're the, if you're the lower-seeded team, that's all you're doing anyway through the first couple of games of these series is try to steal one. And then when you, if you don't, when you get home, you try to steal one at home. But, I mean, that's the name of the game. Now is trying to steal a game in these series. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, you, like you said, like, Every every possession counts. I, to your point about Brooklyn sort of isoing more than more than usual. Uh, that's that's kind of be my first question for Kenny Atkinson pregame tonight is is how comfortable he was with that. I'm sure he's okay with it. Like I said, Levert really good iso player. Uh, Dinwiddie can really get going downhill. Russell has gotten better at that. Yeah, like you said, it's it's any game you can get, it, and especially on the road, is huge. But these series, all of them are far from over well except for milwaukee detroit um <laughs> are far from over and you know I, i'm i'm yeah i'm looking forward to game two basically in every case yeah uh, game two is always interesting to see how people bounce back in game twos yeah i mean it, I, I my my question always for losing coaches is is game two about making an adjustment or is it just playing the same way but playing better you know executing right. better or right. making shots you know or you know it's always the I think the question for every every team that loses game one is like all right do we need to change something or or are we good with what we're doing just we just got to do it a little bit better right no question it's gonna be interesting I, I mean we'll be out and about at these series all week um I know you're locked in with with Philly Brooklyn I'm gonna get a chance to see three different matchups this week. I got a I got a great schedule this week. I'm going to Houston Wednesday, San Antonio Thursday, and then I'll be in Oklahoma City Sunday. So nice. Yeah, I'm a, I'm gonna get a chance to just to just to catch a, a pulse from from each of those series, which I like. I, I like the variety. I want to see how some of these teams are operating. You know, I like it when a series goes from one location to the other as well. That's one of my favorite things. Um, It's just to see what the home atmosphere and environment does for a team. So for San Antonio and Oklahoma City, I'll get a chance to see that. Houston, I'll get a chance to see if the Rockets are, and again, I I don't like projecting them any further than they are, but I, I really am looking forward to that intersection of the Warriors Rockets potentially in that next round and, and what they bring, because to me that could very well be 
the highlight series in the Western Conference playoffs, you know, no matter what goes on after that. Those two teams locking up in round two could be could be something special. So be careful on the road, Chew. I'll do the same. We'll uh, we'll reconvene here later this week after we see a few more games and see what transpires on both sides in in the, in the playoffs. And uh, we didn't get to the news today. I don't think it behooves us, but officially Luke Walton is now the coach of the Sacramento Kings. Um, that word is official. We're awaiting other news to become official, Shoe. Our man David Griffin is the new shot caller in New Orleans. Got a lot on his plate. Lo- would love to get him back on the podcast sometime now that he'll be in charge of uh, the Anthony Davis sweepstakes come July. But um, a lot going on around the league right now. So plenty for us to talk about now and in the upcoming days and weeks here on the Hangtime Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hangtime everywhere you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, everywhere, wherever you get them. Make sure you check out Hangtime. John Schumann, enjoy the game tonight, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, brother. All right. All right. We'll see you right here next time on the Hangtime Podcast.